Okay, welcome to LSE for this evening's event. Um, and I'm delighted to see so many of you here for what's going to be a really interesting discussion. Um, this is being held in the run-up to the LSE Festival Beverage 2.0, which is taking place from Monday the 19th to Saturday the 24th of February, as part of a whole year of activities rethinking the welfare state for the 21st century and in a global context. And we're pleased to be well working for the second time with the All World Youth Prize. My name is Debbie Chalice, and I'm Education and Outreach Officer for the <coughs> Library here at LSE, where we run learning programmes to support staff and students in their studies, um, and I also support the programming of the library's public events and activities to schools, both in the library and externally at schools, using our rich resources. Just to give you a bit of background to what we've got at the library, um, it was established in 1896 with the remit to provide materials from all over the world to enable research in the social sciences. Our collections are nationally recognised for their importance for social science research, and highlights include materials on all aspects of the debates around Britain and the EU from the 1960s onwards, a subject that has returned to prominence, and we're doing an exhibition on Brexit from September to December this year. The archive of Charles Booth's investigation into life and labour of 19th century London, uh, revealing how people, particularly those um, of the poorest people, were living at that time, that's now online as part of um, a digital, um, you can basically have a look at all the maps and notebooks online as part of a digital, digital archive. The Hall Carpenter archives of material relating to gay and lesbian rights and campaigning from the 1950s through to the 1990s. Uh, and last but not least, particularly in this week of uh, the representation of the People's Act, where women were recognised as people for the first time legally, the amazing women's library collections, which reveal the struggles and campaigns for women's rights and equality um, from throughout the world, but particularly um, focusing on Britain. So the current exhibition in our public library um, is on the creation of the welfare states. Here, um, I've put some leaflets outside, and the role in this by the LSE's former director, William Beveridge. So please do go and visit, and it will be followed by an exhibition on, at last, the campaign for women getting the vote. Um, which was passed, as I said, some women got the vote 100 years ago today. Um, this, it, only two, two days ago, 100 years ago this week. So in a moment, I'm going to hand over to Stephen Armstrong to begin this evening's discussion on truth and lies about poverty. Stephen is a journalist and an author, most recently of The New Poverty, and his other books include The Super Rich Shall Inherit the Earth and The Road to Wigan Pier Revisited. He is joined by the Brixton Bard, Alex Wheatle, a writer of both adult and young adult novels, including Crongton Nights, which won the Guardian Children's Fiction Award in 2016, and most recently Straight Outta Crongton. Ross Taylor, Research Manager at the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission, the Department of Media and Communications at LSE and Managing Editor of LSE Brexit. And journalist and author Ross Wynne-Jones, who writes the Real Britain column every Friday in the Daily Mirror. She has spent the last year retracing George Orwell's steps on the road to Wigan Pier, 80 years on, stopping in the places he did and talking to ordinary people about their lives as part of the Daily Mirror's Wigan Pier project. So for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtags for, for tonight's event is hashtag LSEBeverage, and I'd ask you to put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made as available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. So after hearing from our panel, there'll be some time to answer your questions and consider your comments, and we'll be taking these using Poll Everywhere. If you want to take out your phones or tablets now in order to set yourselves up on this, you can see this on the screen shortly. Um, you'll see on the screen a link to follow. So you see that link up there? And you can use, do this by using the Poll Everywhere app if you did download it before the event or just by going to the webpage and typing in that address. So let's give it a practice run now. So I want you to tell me via the app or via the web address what was the last book that you read and let's see what comes up on the screen. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes. The last book that you read. Okay, so it looks like it's working. Brilliant. Fantastic. Okay, now you're trying to outdo each other on what books you've read. <laughs> so, uh, what a fantastically well-read audience. Yeah, here we're going. <laughs> so, um... Oh, look, there's more. So, we can use this at the end to submit your questions or comments at any time as you hear from our panel and we will show the best of them at screen. 
inspiring event for our panel to consider. Okay, so can you try and keep your questions or comments short? Because we're using this app. Um, and finally, just to let you know, talking about books, that Alex and Stephen's books are on sale outside of the theatre, or some of them, some of the books they've written are, and they'll be around to sign them after the event. And now I'm going to hand over to Stephen um, and ask you to welcome our speakers. Thank you very much. This is, um, <clears throat> we're on quite tight time. We're supposed to do eight minutes each, so I'm not looking at my phone for text. I'm just checking to see how the, the stopwatch goes. Um, my name is Stephen Armstrong. I'm a journalist and an author, and I'm also a trustee of something called the Orwell Youth Prize, which is involved in this event. And the Orwell Youth Prize is where, essentially, we ask you to write about politics and to write about the world around you. Uh, it's a competition that runs every year. There's not like a winner-winner. There's a group of people who all get commended and get awards. And uh, if anything that you hear or see or think about tonight feels like something you'd want to explore further, then go to the Orwell Youth Prize site and you can register and win, win, win. Um, so this event's called Truth and Lies About Poverty, and it's part of the Beveridge 2.0. And just, I don't want to patronise, but how many of you know who William Beveridge was? Right, okay, so what I'll do is, it's, it's useful, I think. Um, so William Beveridge was a very odd man. He was um, kind of eccentric and uh, patrician, and he had a series of quite opposing ideas. At one point, he thought that anyone who was unemployed ought to be forcibly sterilised. Um, and then at the beginning of the Second World War, he wanted to run all the manpower across the country, and they didn't, they didn't let him do that. They put him in charge of a, a measurement of the unemployment social security schemes around the country. They were all privately run. It's much more American in those days. That you'd, have, you'd pay for your own health insurance. You'd pay for your own unemployment insurance. And he tried to do a roundup of all these uh, different schemes, and he came to a much, much bigger conclusion. He came to a conclusion which would effectively set up free education, the welfare state the National Health Service, council housing in its current form. He created, really, a lot of the, the, um, the world that we're living in now with this report. And what his report did is it would the momentum, say, what would Clem Attlee do? And what, would, what Clem Attlee did was he just took Beveridge's report and he went, yep, that's what we're going to do. So Beveridge identified what he called five evils, and he called them want, which we'd probably call poverty, squalor, which was poor housing, idleness, which is really unemployment, education uh, and ignorance, and disease, uh, which is still disease. And um, he set out to tackle these things not because he was a socialist or, or doing good works. He wasn't doing this because he wanted people who were worse off to feel better about themselves. He did it because he thought that it would make the country rich. He thought that if you stopped paying for your own health insurance and stopped paying for your own unemployment insurance... And if your employer didn't have to worry about it, there'd be a whole new load of money that went into the economy. And, you know, it's hard to be causal about these things, but it worked. I mean, it worked. The 1950s were an amazing time of growth and change. Um, there's a poverty researcher called Sirbam Roundtree who kind of invented poverty research in, in the UK, and he did surveys of York in 1911, 1936 and 1950. And by 1950, he found that poverty had been eradicated. Now, what he considers eradication, we may not. I mean, at the same time, there was electricity and there was running water going around, and the country was moving from that road to Wigan Pier, carts and slums, to the country recognised today for a lot of reasons. But Beveridge set out to do something, and it happened. So at the time that he was writing, there was a a general consensus that something needed to be done. And it was partly, partly because there'd been a huge depression followed by a long slump and people were broke. There was trouble in Europe and um, everything was looking a bit fragile, I suppose. And in a way, we're kind of there again now. I mean, we do have had a long, long slump. We've got problems with Europe. And uh, everything is a bit fragile. But there's not the same feeling that something needs to be done. There's not uh, 
any sense that there's going to be another beverage coming anytime soon. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I think that we can safely say that the current attitudes that we have, or that the, the Britain has to people in poverty, is really negative. I think there's a lot of stigma attached to the word. I think particularly there's a lot of stigma attached to the idea of benefits. And that's partly because of, of lies that we're told, speaking as a journalist, lies that we're told by journalists. Um, there is a brilliant article on BuzzFeed, and I would urge you to go and look at it. It was 2015, 2016, 2016, um, by someone else called Ros, a third Ros, not, not neither of these Roses. Um, and what she did is she went to all the... She looked at all the stories in the tabloid papers and on TV about benefits mum with five, ten kids, whatever, and she tracked them down. And she found that there were only ten of them, really. There was one woman called Marie... And she had appeared in 43 separate stories. She'd appeared in the Mail, the Mirror, the Sun... Not the Mirror, actually. No, not the Mirror. The Mail, the Sun, uh, and Express, all those kinds of things. She was on the front page as, this is the shocking truth about Benefits Britain. But, you know, she was being represented by an agent in Birmingham who charged the newspapers £5,000 for her appearance. So the news desk would ring up and go, yeah, we need a single mum on benefits with loads of kids. And he'd say, well, yeah, OK, five grand. And he would give her a few hundred, and for a single mum with a lot of kid on benefits, that made sense. I mean, she was, she had some regrets, I think. But um, and so we've got this this image that that world of poverty is somehow fraudulent, grasping. Um, whereas the truth is that there were some figures out, in fact, at um, the beginning of the year, which is that there are there are. The Institute of Fiscal Studies said in the next few years there will be 5.2 million children living in poverty in the UK. Um, in December 2017, 400,000 more children and 300,000 more pensioners were living in poverty than five years ago. And if you set that against the global picture, the, the, the fight against poverty is done extremely well around the world and the developed world. The, around the world, 10% of the world's population live in poverty. In the UK, 20% of our population live in poverty. And particularly for children, that permeates every aspect of life. It's, uh, kids who grow up in poverty find it harder to... Uh, they just perform worse at school. Their health is worse. Um, maybe there's a family relying on food banks. Maybe their homes are transitionary. And uh, generally, if you're born into a poorer family, you are statistically less likely to achieve academically and socially for no other reason than that you're poor. Um, now, this didn't used to be the case. One of the things that, uh, that um, followed Beveridge was this great social mobility. And when I did the Road to Wigan Pier visited, revisited book, I met the sons of three people that all well met in Wigan. And we know that because there's a book about him. Um, there was a guy called Jerry Kennan, a guy called Sid Smith, and a guy called Jim Hammond. And Jerry Kennan's son, Harry... Jerry Kennan was... A, a union organiser and his son Harry was also a union organiser Sid Smith was a paper boy who ran away from oil because he thought he was a dull snoop and his son he then made his paper round into a paper stall into a paper shop and eventually it was the largest independent retailer in the northwest. and his son owned it afterwards sold it and made a lot of money um, and Jim Hammond was an unemployed blacklisted communist coal miner and his son Tony Hammond when I met him was a retired high court judge so those lives changed immeasurably. And after I'd finished talking to Tony Hammond about this in Wigan, I went out to a, 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 like a shopping precinct and met a couple of kids who were probably a little bit younger than everyone in this room. And we were just chatting around, and I said, so what do you want to do when you grow up? And one of them said, well, I want to be, I'd love to be a vet because there's some men on my estate that breed dogs, and I'd love to... And I said, well, there's a guy, Tony Hammond, he lived just, he was born just around the corner from here. He's a judge. And the kid said, yeah, that for me to become a vet, you'd have to be a wizard and you'd have to wave a magic wand. It was the concept of that change and that transformation taking place had, had gone, I think. So what we're going to be looking at today, uh, and slightly overrunning, um, is the truth and the lies about poverty, but also what you think about it. Um, because it's easy, probably at the end of what we've been talking about, everyone will feel quite bleak, hopefully, in some ways. If you don't care at all, then maybe you're in the wrong place. Um, and 
then the, the thing to bear in mind is what we're interested in and what Beveridge did and what this whole programme is about is working out how to solve it. And we've done it already. I mean, it's not a bleak outlook. We've managed to solve poverty in the UK in the 19, in 1950s, and we can do it again. We're reducing poverty around the world. It's increasing here. What would you do? How would you go about it? What are the most important things? What If you were a beverage and you were writing a report that would turn round the UK economy and look after the worst off, what should be in it? So the first person we have speaking is Ros Taylor, who, well, as you heard before, research manager, LSE, trust and technical. And Ros? Yeah, 3T commission we call it because uh, truth, trust and technology is a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, so uh, thanks very much, Stephen. So uh, what I want to do is start with what I promise will be a really short quote from The Road to Wigan Pier. Anyone read The Road to Wigan Pier at all? Of course, it's going to be talked about a lot tonight. I know there was a 1984 up there, but not... No, you should. It's really short. And only read the first half, because the second half is less interesting. The first half is much, much better. It's better, I hope no one minds me saying that. Um, there's a passage at the beginning of that I think reveals a lot about how we think about poverty and how we think about the demands on our time and attention. And that's what I want to talk about today. Because as research manager at the, at the <coughs> Truth, Trust and Technology Commission, we're looking at the problem of online misinformation. You might have thought well, of this as fake news. We think of it as much bigger because defining fake news is really hard and subjective. And Donald Trump goes around talking about fake news. So, you know, go figure. We have to take a wider view than that. We're also looking at the big, big role that platforms like Google and Facebook and Amazon and all the others now play in our society, which they didn't until very recently, and what effect that has on our democracy, how they change the way we interact with each other. So in the paragraph, I'm just going to read quickly. George Orwell is writing about a problem that you still hear a lot about today. Shall I just wait or shall I come? Yeah. Okay. He's writing a problem you still hear a lot about today, and he's directly, directly taking on people who say that the poor should stop eating bad food and making themselves ill. And that might sound a bit familiar to you. If it does, it's because that's still a narrative you hear a lot in the modern media, that the poor are partly to blame for their own situation. So he says, would it not be better if they spent more money on wholesome things like oranges and wholemeal bread, or if they even saved on fuel and ate their carrots raw? Yes, it would, but the point is that no ordinary human being is ever going to do such a thing. The ordinary human being would sooner starve than live on brown bread and raw carrots. And the peculiar evil is this, that the less money you have, the less inclined you feel to spend it on wholesome food. A millionaire may enjoy breakfasting off orange juice and rivita biscuits, for that, read chia seeds and muesli in the morning, yeah? An unemployed man doesn't. Here, the tendency of which I spoke at the end of the last chapter comes into play. When you are unemployed, which is to say when you are underfed, harassed, bored and miserable, you don't want to eat dull, wholesome food. You want something a little bit tasty. There is always some cheaply pleasant thing to tempt you. Let's have three penneth of chips. Run out and buy us a twopenny ice cream. Put the kettle on and we'll all have a nice cup of tea. That is how your mind works when you're at the PAC level. PAC stands for Public Assistance Committee, which is what we would kind of now think of as benefits, except benefits didn't exist in the way they do now, when Orwell was writing. So this is, for me, is one of the most sort of vivid and useful parts of the road to Wigan Pier, because we've all felt that way ourselves at the end of a long day, when we want to go and get a stuffed crust pizza rather than putting together a bowl of rice and veg from the fridge. It's a common, it's a common human feeling. But how much more true is that when your food budget is, say, 15 quid a week and you've got a single ring to cook on? And at the same time, we hear from some people that the poor need to take on more responsibility for themselves, eat better, stop being a burden on the NHS. So all we're here is talking about food, but what is true for what we choose to eat can also be true for how we choose to spend our free time. And increasingly, as I've just talked about, we spend our free time on the internet. What we do when we're on the way home after a long day, we don't want to necessarily want to break down on the latest problem with the Brexit negotiations, or we don't want a reminder of how many people are stuck in the same low-wage trap that we are. We want something a bit tasty, a bit escapist, a half an hour on Instagram or ten minutes on Snapchat. That's what we go for. And that suits these platforms just fine. 
Because what's called the attention economy by academics or eyeballs by advertisers, getting you to scroll, getting you to like, getting you to share, getting you to comment, that gives these platforms the data about you and your preferences that they can use to serve you ads. And that's how they make the vast majority of their profits, through the attention economy. And when Orwell wrote The Road to Wigan Pier, he did it with a very clear aim in mind. Orwell himself had gone to Eton. He was a very, very privileged guy. When he went to stay in working-class communities, he did it because he wanted to bring the poverty he saw in those communities to the attention of the elite in Britain because he knew that was the only way at the time that change would come about unless there was a revolution, as was happening in other countries like Russia. And in that, he's part of a long tradition of writers in English who had a tradition, to, to, uh, who had a mission, rather, to stop us sliding into complacency, to stop us ignoring poverty. In fiction, you might think of Charles Dickens doing that. Someone who's just been reading Great Expectations, great example of that kind of writing about the poor. John Steinbeck, if you've read The Grapes of Wrath, is another one in America. Uh, more recently, in the 90s, a woman called Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a book called Nickel and Dimed about what it was like to live on the minimum wage and struggle to get by as a cleaner in America. And most recently, there's a journalist called Ben Judah who went to sleep rough with Eastern Europeans in London. He went under the under, uh, to the underpasses and he spent the night with them. And he, talk, he, he got to know what they were doing and he wrote about it in a book about London. So the role of the media in a democracy is not just to cover elections properly. It's about reporting how people live because we can't make good decisions about how to run society without that knowledge. Because although in theory everyone has an equal vote and an equal say in our democracy, we know that's not true. Because the rich have access to lobbyists, to ways to make their voices heard, means of protecting their interests. And the more unequal a society becomes, and the bigger the distance between the top and the bottom in terms of income, the harder it is to scale that gap and to imagine yourself in someone else's life. Even a hundred years ago, if you were a servant, you often lived in the same house as your employer. And now servants, or Uber drivers maybe, they go home at night to places their employers never see. Even the idea of employment with the mutual responsibilities that implies, even that is being challenged now by self-employment, where you're responsible for yourself. You sort out your own sickness, your own time off. You don't have those rights. But if the sight of poverty alone were enough to, to move us and to change things, and there, there would be fewer homeless people on the, on the streets of London, it's not enough to point out the contrast between the oligarchs in Knightsbridge or South Kensington or wherever or Notting Hill and the people dying from cold and high on spice who you see outside Tottenham Court Road tube station. It's striking, but it's not enough to change things because it's the narratives that cut through, like Orwell's in The Road to Wigan Pier, they give us the time and the space to enter the lives of other people and to empathise with them. And it's not true that we only have short attention spans now. We really have the patience for narratives like this because we binge on box sets and Netflix and we listen to podcasts and watch incredibly granular depictions of war on film. Long-form journalism, things like that, they're not dead. We do have, can still do that. But it's in order to do that, it's a question of getting out there. And it's a question of asking things like, who's in A&E at midnight? Who's cleaning your school after you go home? Who's driving your Uber? Because democracy is only meaningful when we can still identify with people who do these jobs or who don't have jobs at all. When we can still capable of understanding why they think differently from us and able to live with it when they vote differently from us. So where does technology come into this? Because I haven't talked about that too much yet. Let's not imagine that technology necessarily brings us closer to the truth about our society. Because on the contrary it can make it much easier for us to retreat into a world where we look for affirmation from others rather than reaching out to them. Technology invites us to ask quite often, how does the rest of the world see me? Show me as I'm seen. I don't want to look outward. I want to look at myself. And yet it also has the power to immerse us in other people's worlds, if we can make it do that. And I think if we're going to continue to trust each other or to try and trust each other again as a society... That is one of the big challenges for media in the next few years. It's to help us look at each other face to face, not just to summon a stranger to drive us home at night via an app in their car and then give them a good rating if they shut up and do their job, and then that's it. To have that economic, purely economic relationship with them. 
and to counter the misinformation that people, including journalists, spread by reaching out rather than looking inwards. And so to conclude, I guess my question for you is how could technology help us do this? Have you got any ideas for how it could? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. Um, Thank you. Um, And now, Alex, would you take the floor? Yeah, okay. Okay, on my journey here, I live in Clapham Junction, and um, I took the train to Waterloo, and I decided, you know what, I'm not going to take a bus, let me walk. And so I walked across um, the bridge, uh, where the South Bank is and so on, and I think on the way here, I spotted around about four or five people who were sleeping rough. And then um, it kind of reminded me, as, um, as I walked across the bridge, I saw the, um, the cityscape, if you like, all these nice, fancy buildings going up, um, where investors have um, put in millions and millions upon millions of pounds to uh, erect these buildings. And it took me back to around about two, three years ago when we was trying to save um, the Carnegie Library in Hernhill Road. Anyone know there? Anyone know um, Col Arbor Lane? Yeah. Hernhill Road. In fact, my mother, uh, she lived on that road many, many years ago, and it's a library that she attended to, and it's, it's a lovely building, and uh, we tried to save it. And this library, it was used by um, people of your age, young people, who um, you know, were in, unfortunate in terms that um, they didn't have an internet connection at home. And so those young people use it to study, to revise, and so on, go on the internet and, and so forth. There were chess clubs, there were um, book clubs, there were, um, I think there was an old people's meeting group there. And so we tried our best to save it. I think Lamb of Council said at the time that, um, oh, they need to um, somehow you know, uh, try to reduce the, um, the bill or, or, or so, some, some stupid excuse. And they replaced it with a gym, as if Lambeth needs another gym. And it just occurred to me just now, as I was walking across the bridge, so much money is going into London, so it's a lie being told that um, there's no money available. Yes, there is. I mean, if you put even a quarter percent of, uh, I don't know, some kind of form of stamp duty on these fantastic new shiny buildings going up, and you, you reserve that quarter percent to do um, social uh, schemes like libraries and so on, they would still be there. I believe they would still be there. There is money there to um, make uh, places like libraries, um, social care and so on, exist and keep on going. That's, that's my thought anyway, as I walked across the bridge. And, um, and then I started to think about the, um, how the great division has opened up over the last 20, 25 years. Uh, this hit home when um, I read about, uh, what's his name, Jeff Bezos, is that how you pronounce mm. his name? The owner of Amazon. Does, does any of you know how rich this guy is? It's ridiculous. He's the richest guy in the world now. He's passed, um, he's passed everybody. He's the richest guy in the world. I think it was the guy from Walmart or something like that, or the German guy. But uh, Jeff Bezos, I think he's worth something like um, $150 billion or something crazy like that. And then you look at his workforce. You look at his workforce, and um, they're on minimum wage. In a factory, in an Amazon factory somewhere in the world, they're on minimum wage. And you know what? They get fined if they go to the, um, the loo for 10 minutes, and they're not back within 10 minutes. They get fined. And this guy's creaming it off, you know, um, $150 billion a year. So this mass division has opened up because over the years, the unions have become weakened, so they cannot fight for workers' rights. And so these workers have to go home, they're unseen, they struggle to pay their bills, they struggle to pay their rent, and so on, they struggle to find places to live. And so this is why this great division has, um, has, has opened up, this big chasm has opened up, because I guess we've allowed the super rich to get away with what they like, basically, since the crash of um, 2008. And um, we have to fight against that. We really have to fight about that. Um, and then, for me, I came into uh, writing. I was, um, I played a part in the Brits uprising of 1981. We like to call it an uprising rather than a riot because we felt we had to stand up and, and fight the police of the day because they were a brutal, racist, kind of occupying force in my time. And um, for that, I served time. Um, but then I decided, you know what, I want to um, give the people who I knew, the people who I grew up with, the people who are my friends, a voice. Very important in a democracy that we hear those voices. Because now those voices are getting much, much harder to hear or they don't get the space or the platforms to uh, say what it's like for them and say, this is my existence. And so that is why I came into writing. And it's been a struggle ever since. It's even a struggle today. 
I mean, uh, it was mentioned earlier that I've written um, adult novels as well. And those adult novels were received very well, very warmly. But in 14 years of writing um, adult fiction that was um, critiqued very well everywhere, I, went, I was invited to one major literary festival. I think that was um, Cheltenham. And even that was a panel of a, a black diversity panel or whatever. So I was never afforded the, um, the luxury of uh, you know, going on my own behalf, my own merit or, or whatever. And um, I came across that all the time in my adult literature career. And, and then I found that um, the further that I, you know, my, as my career went, uh, I came across this Oxbridge barrier where there seemed to be, for me, you know, this is new to me, this hierarchy that is still in place today, where um, if you go to one of the main universities, you're already deemed superior. Doesn't matter if you went to um, uh, Hull, doesn't matter if you went to Portsmouth, you know, Oxbridge is it. And they will be forever until this crumbles and it's still in place. They will be forever in place, um, determining what canon you read, what, um, what books you read at school and so on. Um, and I'll make a comparison here. I wrote East of Acre Lane. Uh, that came out in 2001. And that was written against a backdrop of the Brixton Uprise in 1981. And it was critiqued well everywhere, everywhere, even abroad. And I thought, oh, yes, I've made it now. I've made it now. Oh, no. Oh, no. They made me know my place. You know, so um, you guys won't get to um, uh, write uh, pieces about it in, um, in schools, or it's not on a school curriculum in any way, even though it was highly regarded because of my station, because of my working class background, because I didn't go to any major university, no. That is never going to be studied. And then, um, and this is where the Oxford hierarchy comes into place. Uh, Stephen Kelman, who's a very good friend of mine, he wrote a book called Pigeon English. It's basically based on the Demolona Taylor story. Anyone aware of that? And, um, and because he's Oxford, because he's white, you know, he got lauded everywhere, he was nominated for the book, and now schools all over the country they can, use it as, they can study that as an option, or read it as an option for um, the examinations, or, or, or was it GSE levels or whatever. And so this is how this system works. And until we confront it, until we challenge it, it will stay in place. And it's a, it's a tool to keep working class people down. It's a tool to stop progress of working class communities getting access to what, was spoken about, what Ross spoke about earlier, about denying us that chance, denying us opportunities. And so really my work is all about I want those voices to be heard. So I'll forever, as long as I'm able to, write about um, the things that I care about, that I'm passionate about, the characters that I meet. I've been a youth worker for an, a long number of years and I see these young people coming, I see them with their high hopes, I see them go to school at 11 with all these dreams, you know, they're going with perfect minds, ready to absorb and then through the process of the educational system as it's taught today. You know, uh, by year 9, year 10, year 11, Alex, you know what, I can't do this anymore. You know, I've been told that all the time. And I say to them, you know what, hang in there. Hang in there because your voice is important. And I, I'm going to end up by saying this, that um, my voice, your voice, is just as valid as anybody else's. You know, I don't care who they are. You know, um, your background, your story, your narrative is as important as Prince William's new baby going to be born this year or anybody else's. And because we've been sold this lie, because of the fake news, because of the Sun, the Telegraph, and all these right-wing newspapers that tell us we must <coughs> bow down to this high, mighty um, hierarchy that's above us, you know, where they tell us that um, those lies are more important than ours. Until we challenge that, it will persist. So I'm asking you guys, challenge it. How do you follow that? Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I'm glad you didn't mention the mirror there in your, uh, in your list. Um, hello. Uh, I was just thinking when um, Alex was talking then about walking over Battersea Bridge, um, I don't know if anyone lives in that bit of London, but one of the things you notice when you walk along there at night is that there's no lights on in all those big posh flats that are all along the river. Um, and that's been something that's been really studied, that there are no lights on because nobody lives in them. Um, they're all owned by Russians, 
people in the Middle East, people who don't live in this country and they're just bought for investment. Um, meanwhile, we've got a massive housing crisis in London, as people know, uh, where people haven't got anywhere to live. So they're like, they're like an amazing example of something that's going on um, in our world right now. Um, so truth and lies about poverty. Uh, as a tabloid journalist, this is something I spend a lot of my life uh, worrying about. Um, so I write a weekly column at the Mirror newspaper called Real Britain, which is about how kind of austerity cuts are affecting ordinary people's lives. Um, so I spend a lot of my time in food banks, homeless shelters, on estates, just talking to people about what it's like to be struggling in this country and why, why they think they're struggling. Um, and secondly, since January last year, I've been retracing George Orwell's Road to Wigan Pier, this book that you keep hearing about. Uh, so he sets off from Birmingham, he goes all through the Midlands, um, uh, Liverpool, Manchester, Wigan itself, and then Yorkshire. We're doing the Yorkshire leg at the moment. Um, so that's been really interesting as well. Um, so, in, so 80 years ago, Orwell found all of these people living in really desperate poverty in these places. And the sad thing is that we've gone back and we've knocked on the same doors and people are pretty much living in the same way. And in a way, the sadder thing is that things did actually get better for quite a long while. Um, Orwell's generation um, built the welfare state, the NHS, all these sorts of things, and things did improve. But the cuts that are happening at the moment and lots of other factors, the way that business is working and insecure work is happening, is reducing people to a lot of poverty again in those areas. Um, so I think one of the... Um, in the sort of era of fake news, how to represent people <coughs> truthfully just becomes more and more important when you're a journalist. And Orwell, um, I really sort of recommend reading, is one of the most sort of honest writers that you can read. He's incredibly honest, painfully honest almost. Um, but of course he's only writing his own truth and this is partly kind of what Alex is talking about. So um, Orwell's a kind of colonial writer he's sort of he was a policeman in Burma at one time part of the sort of colonial class and he went to Eton and although he really lives close to people's experience and he lives in the slums while he's writing that book at the end of the day he can pick himself up and go home you know whenever he likes and one of the interesting people that I've found on the journey that I've been writing about is a guy called George Garrett um, who showed Orwell around Liverpool now, he was a working-class writer. He was very, very talented, one of the most sort of talented writers probably around at that time. But because he lived in a very poor bit of Liverpool in Toxteth, still poor today, um, he, and he had a number of kids, he used to have to go away to sea all the time. So he only used to basically write short stories. He couldn't write a long book because he only had a little bit of time when he was at shore. And when he used to go to the library to try and concentrate... There were loads of illiterate people that used to come and say, George, can you write me a letter? And, you know, can you read this from, it's, come, you know, it's coming, I need your help. So George could never basically get any writing done. And that, but yet Orwell was a completely sort of opposite kettle of fish. You could just go wandering around, you know, thinking about things, sitting in libraries and coming up with the work that he did. So although Orwell wrote about him, he didn't get to tell his own truth. And I think that's some of the important question, whose truth are you telling? Um, so 80 years on, our project has kind of faced a similar question, really. How do we tell the truth about people that live in poverty in a way that is their truth and not my truth or anyone else's truth? Um, and... In some ways, we've been able to take advantage of technology. So our project, when it's finished, it's been running in the mirror as we go, but at the end, it's going to be a kind of multimedia project. So we've been able to do a bit of video. We're going to show you a video today. We've also done about 200 just first-person stories where people tell their own stories and their own voice about what their life is like, as well as some of the essays that we've written. Um, and we've really tried, I've tried really hard to find the sort of invisible people, the people that are sleeping under flyovers and in skips and in soup kitchens, um, as well as trying to sort of track down the working poor, which can be really hard because people have three jobs and they're very, very busy and it's not always easy to speak to them. Um, and at, at the moment, it's clear the country's not working for those people. And I think if you want to tell the truth about those people, you have to ask the question, why is it not working for them? And that is a really important thing. You can't just say, oh, the country's not working. It's like, why? Why is it not working for those people? So 
As I've already said, the generation that came after Orwell's built the welfare state, they built the NHS, there's millions of council houses. We live in the seventh richest nation in the world. So if a million people went to a food bank last year, I don't know if you know that statistic, um, but actually probably more, they're the ones that get recorded, um, it's got to be a political choice. And part of the way that that political choice has been able to happen has been because of the demonisation of poor people uh, I think particularly on television. So you kind of, you get Benefit Street, who's seen Benefit Street, Benefits Britain, there's these endless programs, like if you've got multiple prejudices, you can have gypsies on benefits, or some other, you know, there's like, they cover every, every kind of prejudice that you have, these programs, and they're really well watched. And I think, you know, look at last week, a couple of weeks ago, the Tory youth czar, a guy called Ben Bradley, MP, who's supposed to be getting young people into the Conservative Party, had to apologise for his remarks about the vast sea of unemployed wasters that were out there. And he was saying that, um, you know, basically people shouldn't be allowed to have kids if they were poor. Um, so he's had to apologise for those remarks, quite similar to beverage. Uh, so um, no wonder that people think, have all these ideas. Like, the public think that 27% of the welfare budget is claimed fraudulently. It's actually 40 times less than that figure. But we think that's a real figure because of the stuff that we get fed all the time. Um, now, this is, what, the, what we need to understand is that the austerity programme, has anyone heard of austerity? So uh, since 2010, the government have had this idea called austerity where they've said that we need to balance the books as a country. Our country hasn't got enough money, so we've got to balance the books. So in that time period... Rich people have not had to tighten their belts. They've actually got richer. The ones that have had to tighten their belts are actually the poor people, which would obviously be mad if you didn't think that all the poor people were scroungers, so it was fine to take their money. So you can kind of see how this is working and how, how that narrative has a sort of real effect. Um, so what we've been trying to think about in our project is how do you tell people's sort of real <coughs> stories and one of the things that I was really interested in um, is there's a, there's a famous scene in Orwell's book where he's looking out of his train window and he sees this poor woman and she's got a hand down, kind of down a drain pipe. She's trying to sort of fix a, a drain. Um, and he says, uh, he writes, at the back of one of the houses, a young woman was kneeling on the stones, poking a stick up the leaden waste pipe, which ran from the sink inside and which I suppose was blocked. He says, what I saw in her face was not the ignorant suffering of an animal. She knew well enough what was happening to her, understood as well as I did how dreadful a destiny it was to be kneeling there in the bitter cold on the slimy stones of a slum backyard, poking a stick up a foul drainpipe. And I think he tries to write with sympathy and empathy uh, for this young woman. But our challenge has really been about how do you give that woman back her voice? Instead of Orwell's voice, he's decided what he thinks. How do we give her back her voice? And that's sort of what we've been trying to do. So when we've been in Wigan, we've been trying to find elderly people of that generation and ask them, what was your life really like then, as well as talking to people who live there now? So although we haven't been able to find that woman, and we're not even sure if that woman exists, to be fair, uh, 80 years on, we found uh, a woman called Rita, who I'm going to show you this little four-minute film about in a minute. Um, now, if you ask Rita, she'd say she didn't live in a slum, she'd be really quite cross if she thought I was trying to imply that uh, she did. Um, but she did have a really tough life, and she lived, um, she had to share a bed with all her brothers and sisters, there's about seven of them, and they used to have coats for blankets, and it was very, it was like bitterly cold. And the morning after her 14th birthday, so similar to um, your kind of age, she went to work at the pit uh, as a pit brew lass. And the reason that young girls were selected for that job was because they had uh, very sort of thin, nimble fingers, so they were able to pick the dirt out of the coal as it came down. So as the coal sort of came up, it got put on these conveyor belts and these pit lattes would grab at the, the dirt out of the coal as it, as it came past. Um, now, she, so she or her mum or any of her sisters could have been sort of person that Orwell saw, you know, trying to get this filth out of a drain. And we talked to her and we kind of said, what would you have been thinking about at that time? And she said, well, 
I would have been thinking about there was this yellow cardigan with pearl buttons that I was really obsessed with. That's what I was really obsessed with at that time. And I was really, really into this boy that used to live on the other road. So I was probably thinking about that. So she probably wasn't thinking about human misery, the state of human misery at that time. She was a person. She had so much other stuff going on that wasn't just about the fact that she lived in poverty. She was a whole person. Um, and so, anyway, we're going to show you the film in a minute, but there's, I just wanted to mention that there was another little postscript uh, for me in this project that we've been doing, which was after I'd set off on this road to Wigan Pier... Uh, my dad said to me that his granddad had come from Wigan, which he thought my dad might have mentioned before, like helpfully, but he hadn't. Um, so I started to try and track down my great-granddad and find out, you know, where he'd, where he'd come. He, t he was another George, so I keep finding these Georges. Um, so I tracked his family down to a little village of nail makers that were just outside, uh, literally a couple of miles out of Wigan. And... Um, Nail making in Victorian times was one of the worst professions that you could do, basically. Uh, people did it in their back garden with a fire and just bits of metal and hammers and they were always going blind and burning themselves. And you got paid very, very badly. So for every, you'd, you'd make like thousands of nails a week and then you'd get paid a couple of shillings or something for them. Um, so I found out that um, my granddad was the son of a nail maker, great-granddad was the son of a nail maker who had died just before... He was born, so he was like fatherless, sort of born into this town. And he would have been about 40 when uh, Orwell goes to Wigan. So I feel like Orwell, you know, they could have walked past each other. Like other sort of Wiganers, you feel that you start to sort of take these stories even more personally. And I think the lesson for that, for me, from all of it really, is that as journalists, we, we're always trying to write our own truth. Orwell wanted to write his own truth. We always have our own idea of the truth, but we also have this real responsibility as custodians of other people's truths, and that's the really sort of tough bit. We're running a little bit over, but let's see what questions... We've got some questions here, and we can also go to the floor. I can. So, in, there's two or three different ways of measuring poverty around the world. There's the, if you like, the UNESCO starvation level poverty, which is officially two dollars a day, um, and that's kind of, you know, Sudan sort of level. In the UK, they have a, two measures: one called absolute poverty and one called relative poverty. Uh, absolute poverty, we don't need to think about it because really it was a piece of new labour pegging that was going to make them look good. But uh, relative poverty means that if you're earning 60% or less of the average wage, um, then you're having trouble making ends meet. Uh, but then within the UK as well, there is... I met a kid uh, in a homeless hostel in Manchester who was 18. He'd been sanctioned off benefits for missing an appointment... He was on a crisis loan, so he was getting £28 a week. And he had to pay £10 a week to the homeless hostel. So he was on £18, which is close to £2.50 a day, which is pretty much at the same level as the Sudan kind of poverty. Who wants to take that? Uh, what would you do to decrease poverty? Um, I'd narrow the gap between those... Jeff Bezos-type entrepreneurs. I mean, he maybe took a $2 billion a year um, pay uh, deduction. He could pay his workers perhaps one and a half times the minimum wage. And so I think society in general has become too greedy. And until we address that, you know, we're going to see. We're going to see this. So we need to get those high and mighty to come down a bit decrease together. What is the best way to fund welfare? Um, well, the only way you can fund welfare is through taxation, basically. Uh, you have to pay higher taxes. Um, unless you're going to have a sort of state where everyone volunteers, which is not realistic. Um, so 
what kind of taxes do you have, then, is a question. Because there's loads of different taxes you can have. You can put up VAT. You can tax uh, sales of st uh, stamp duty on houses, for example. You can just have a regular income tax. You can put up national insurance. Not that much difference between income tax and national insurance, really, but there kind of is in people's minds. You can make it clear what you're spending the money on. Um, and you can be clearer about that, which I think is really important. People, you only get buy-in and you only get people willing to pay more taxes without complaining too much. If you make it clear who's going to be paying more tax, which is, should be the people who can afford it, that's called progressive taxation, where rich people are taxed more, poorer people aren't, and you make it clear where the money is going and how it's being spent and that it's being spent wisely. Um, Alex, do you want to take how to... How to decrease racism. As, um, it's, it's very difficult because a lot of racism is hidden. I mean, sometimes we see the blatant racism of Trump and so forth, but a lot of it is hidden. Has anybody seen the film The Magnificent Seven? You've seen that film, the one with Jewel Brenner with a nice hat and the bull, you, you see that? Well, for me, the most um, crucial scene in that film is very early on when they want to bury this Indian up on top of, um, I think it's called Boot Hill, in, in, a, in a cemetery there. And then there's um, races in the village who doesn't want him buried at this spot because white people are buried there. The Yul Brunner character comes out and he says, to hell with this, let's get him buried there. So basically, um, we need someone to um, address those enablers, because it's not the Trump um, that is the issue here, it's the enablers who allow him and others of his ilk to behave in the way they do. Like, for instance, I'd even put Boris Johnson in this category. The, thing, the comments that he comes out with, his enablers, the government and so on, they allow him to do this. If we started to challenge those enablers, and then it'd be much more difficult for these racists to give voice to their gut feelings. You know, so um, we need to challenge those enablers, not just the person who spouts out all this racist crap, but the enablers. They're, they're the problem. In the American government, in this government, they are the problem because they allow... I was just going to say, um, whoever put the question about racism in this context, it's, really, it's a really good question to ask because what we know is that when people feel more poor and more under pressure, that's when the issues like racism can really get whipped up. So some of the stuff that we've seen around Brexit, I think, for example... That's been about communities that have felt very, very poor and under pressure. It's been really easy for people to wind them up and say that immigrants are the responsible for everything. So people become more vulnerable to this sort of rhetoric when, when that's going on. Um, the question about um, universal basic in income, that was a really good question, uh, whoever that's from. Um, I, don't, I don't know if people know what the idea of universal basic income is. It's, the, it's basically the idea that we replace the whole benefit system with a um, certain amount of money that everybody would get, regardless of like whether you're poor or not poor. Everybody would get the same amount. So there'd just be this basic level that people had to live on. Um, I'm not quite sure about it. I've seen it modelled in lots of different ways as an idea, but I think we definitely need to radically reinvent the economy and the way that it's working. Um, in the meantime, some people asked about how do you um, reduce poverty? And I think there are really easy, immediate things you can do about that because when people go to food banks, they generally go with exactly the same reasons. There's about four reasons, and they are things like the fact that people now get their benefits stopped and sanctioned. Um, the fact the benefit system is so incompetent, so... I write stories all the time about people that have got cancer, but they've been told that they should be going to work, or people whose benefit claims have got lost, and so there's, there's a whole thing around that. Um, but there's also, the other key factor is insecure work. So I don't know if people, I don't know, if people know about zero-hour contracts, for example, where um, you just only get paid for a certain amount of hours per week, and they can tell you any day that you haven't got work. That's a massive, massive driver of poverty in the country at the moment. Um, so the shows like Benefit Street, I think we've all got an opinion on, probably everyone in the room has an opinion on. I mean, one of the things that I, d I just say is that I didn't read this earlier, but I was supposed to. Um, there's an organisation called Full Fact that fact-checks politicians and fact-checks uh, stories to see if, they, if, if people are lying. And they did a big survey of stories discussing benefits uh, in the 2015, <coughs> run-up to the 2015 election. 
and they found that the, the top words used before or after the word benefits were cap, fraud, system claimant, sanction scrounger, bill, cut, payment, cheap, tourism, and scam. So the, and what the full fact found is that the, the stories of huge families living on housing and child benefit um, vastly overestimate the scale of both problems on a weekly basis. Only 87,300 families of all kinds with five or more children are in receipt of child benefit, and there's a total of 7,461,700. So that 1% of the total families are in that situation. And full fact said, the prominence of this story in the newspaper articles in our analysis does not appear to reflect the incidence of this kind of claimant. And I would say that's doubly true for Benefit Street. Um, the next one we had actually was, uh, does social media have a part to play in challenging poverty? Oh, well, um, depends what social media you're talking about. Depends what, yeah, depends what social media may become. Uh, it may be that in two years' time, Facebook, for example, ceases to exist in the way that we think of it now. But when I first started working on the internet, which was 1998, some time ago, there was a very idealistic view about what the internet could do about all kinds of things, the information it could provide. And in some ways, that has been borne out. If you think about something like Wikipedia and the amount of information available freely, it's unbelievable, it's fantastic. In other ways, it, the Internet has not fulfilled the promise that those people hope. It has become a place where people often share hateful things, where people often abuse each other. And the problem with social media at the moment, and the fear I have for it, is that it may turn inward. And people will retreat from these spaces, from retreat from social media, because they don't want the abuse, because they don't want to have a bad time. They will stay in closed channels like WhatsApp, like Snapchat, rather than open ones, where they get exposed potentially to things that they weren't expecting. So if the internet can be more than just extension of your social life, then yeah, the so the, the, then, then potentially it does have that. Uh, and I think we may, may well tackle poverty in ways that we haven't even conceived of yet because it's changing so fast. Can you scroll the screen back up by any chance? There's a question that says, what is the most efficient? And I've written it half down and then it scrolled out of sight. Effective way for reducing the social gap in educational outcomes. Mm, that's a difficult one. Anyone <laughs> <laughs> take that? Effective way. Mm. Um... I like to get rid of them. I, I like to make all schools on a on the same level, if that's possible at all. I think you're right. If you get if you got rid yeah. of private schools, if you got rid of private schools, I think that would equalise many things, because there's still this kind of phenomenon where I know even parents of my generation they're moving to certain parts of the country because they know that this school is performing and this school's not performing. But I, I can't see why government. Um, policy, or even um, for the other side as well, Labour and so on, why can't they have this policy where they want all schools to perform at the same level? I mean, why not? Why can't a school in Portsmouth be performing as, as a school in Cheltenham or a school in Edinburgh? Why can't they all perform at the same level, or at least try to attain that level? 7% uh, of the country went to private school, and if you add up all the money that's spent by the country and by parents and so forth on education, 25% of the total education spend goes to private schools. So it, that would be a very quick and cheap way of starting to redress the balance. Um, I'm aware that we're rushing through these, and actually all of these questions could end up in a half-hour discussion. So um, sorry if we are being too brief. Um, but what's, what's, what's our time limit? When do we have to... <laughs> oh, okay, so, can anyone take different ways to define poverty these days? What actually is being poor when you're comparing? Is it about comparing yourself? <coughs> someone thinking about raising awareness is that a large factor in changing poverty? And someone thinking about all oh, being a poverty activist. Um, who wants to take what? Hmm. Um, I, I guess for me, as a parent, I'm thinking. Can you cater for your child's needs? Can you feed your child? Can you clothe your child? Can you um, give your child the information they need to um, further their prospects? So give them every chance they can to succeed in whatever, in, in whatever profession they want to, uh, want to enter. And um, I don't see that. 
I go around the country a lot, and I don't, I don't see those same opportunities that um, other children have. For me, it's not just poverty of food. It's not just poverty of uh, material goods. It's poverty of ambition. It's poverty of aspiration as well. For me, those things are included. Until we start equalising that, then um, we're still going to be talking poverty in 20, 40, 60 years' time. We've got to, um, we, we've got to try and equalise those aspects of poverty, not just the problem of food or whatever. It's, it's a poverty of ambition too. I think it's also, sorry, it's also worth mentioning that when people talk about poverty, when people measure um, the cost of living in particular, they don't always factor in housing. And that is so much of an issue now because, so because uh, social housing has almost disappeared because private, housing, uh, private rental is so incredibly expensive in places like London and often very, very badly run by the landlords who own it and because house prices are so expensive. So when you look at that kind of famous basket of goods and we talk about how much prices have gone up, they don't factor housing into that. And yet, I bet if you asked anybody you know who spends, any of your parents or whoever who spend money on housing, how much they do, in London it would be at least a third, if not half, if not more, of their income. It's a huge factor that isn't taken into account properly, I think. Um, and other, one really brief thing on that is that a lot of people get really uh, uh, focused on material possessions and there's, a, there's, a, there's always been these surveys of what people should or shouldn't have. The minimum income stand of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation ask people and they say, what, what do you think people should be allowed to have? Um, and all along the way people have talked about how newspapers are important and radio is important and in the 1950s a phone was seen as a luxury now a phone is seen as a necessity but television always always television is always seen as a luxury there's a feeling by the british population that if someone owns a television they're not poor but the truth of it is that that places like bright house sell televisions on higher purchase for four times the rate you could get on um, on amazon if you had a credit card but the poor don't get banked um uh can we stop with the questions and then we'll just try and deal with the ones we've got left, which is how would you solve the problem of housing, raising awareness, all activists and eradication? Who wants to take problem of housing? Well, housing, it's quite simple. You need to build more. Yeah. yeah. As simple as that. There's no other way around it. How many people here think that 20% of the UK is covered in housing and buildings and roads? Think it's higher or lower? Lower. How much lower? Less than ten? Less than five? It's less than one percent. Less than one percent of the UK is covered by any form of building. So it's not like we don't have the space. We're going to do the... Uh, there was a question... Everybody! There was a question raising awareness. Is raising awareness a large factor in changing or challenging poverty? I can't even imagine. And... Who wants to take You're raising awareness with your comment. I think, yeah, I mean, I think if you, you have to raise awareness because you have to show people how people are living. I'd keep having this idea that if only more people will see how some people are living. The trouble in this country is that it's really easy to live in some parts of London and South East, um, not all parts of London, but and just be really, really... Like, recently I went through the town where David Cameron used to live in... Um, uh, Chipping Norton, isn't it? And when you go around there, it, it's literally like a painting on the front of a chocolate box. There's no flowers out of place. Everything's green. The houses are beautiful. There's only like wonderful things happening and the sound of um, children laughing. And there's literally no sign of poverty whatsoever there. And there is a feeling that lots of people grow up in these places and they've literally got no idea about the reality of what's happening. And how, how do you show them that is a really important issue. And I think, um, for me, the, the, the other question about whether Orwell is an activist or not sort of leads into that. I used to think that as a journalist, you shouldn't be an activist. You should just report on things. You should just go out and try and write down the facts. But the trouble is, the more that you do a job like mine, you can't help but become an activist or become engaged by what you're doing because the stuff that you see every day is really hard to sort of leave behind and you just feel that you have to get kind of more and more involved. And Orwell, where he goes after this book, he never even sees this book published. This is what I always think is interesting. He goes off to fight in the Spanish Civil War against fascists. That's his next step. So he literally hits a point where, a bit like Alex, when he joins his uprising, 
he, he saw the moment and he said, I can't, I can't just sit here through this. I've, I've got to get up there and fight and do something. And um, I hope you'll all feel like you'll want to do something. Okay, should we end on the final question? <laughs> would you a quick, uh, will the panel, how would you, what's the most important steps in eradicating poverty in the future? <laughs> Ooh, one sentence each. One sentence. Access to the great levels of education that um, middle class people get. Don't read any one newspaper and make sure it's not the Daily Mail. <laughs> um, I would personally get rid of this government, I have to say. And I would say that, that really, actually, the thing would be to ask you, because you're the coming generation, you're the ones who are starting to vote. We are already past it and towards, staggering towards the final years of our lives. You have the future in your hands. So the, the question, how would you eradicate poverty in the future, I think that's something that we'd like you to answer, ideally in the next two to five years. That would be great. <laughs> so if you'd care to join me in thanking our esteemed panel... from LSC, sorry if you didn't get a chance to ask a question, or rather you asked a question but didn't get it answered, but it was really great to see so many responses and to get so much debate like going and loads of questions um, that you know, we could debate this for hours. So, um, but thank you so much to the speakers for a fascinating discussion. Um, there's loads more events coming up over the next month, and in fact over the next year, around the Welfare State and around Beveridge, so do check them out. And um, do come to the Library Exhibition, also, the copies of Stephen and Alex's books are available for sale outside the theatre. And there's going to be a, we're using the power of the phones to send you a short survey, so please fill that in too. And now, please thank me just once again in thanking, uh, please join me rather.